你正在收听。In the corner, by the by, the water pail. 博客，好的。<笑>Like a lot was uncompleted. I should also remind y'all that Mac Daddy McWilliams is with me in the recording studio, and Miss Vic is the voice at the beginning of each chapter. Lao Tzu takes people's communal well-being very seriously, suggesting that a perfect ruler is one who allows people to live in comfort and stand up for themselves. The politics that makes this possible are predicated on the overall attitude of non-action: live and let live. Sun Haken. I should apologize for this one because this one I think I wrote when I was irritated and angry, and it's more of a rant. Okay. So, when I got back home to Tennessee after the initial excitement of reconnecting with family, girlfriends, soon to become wife, and friends, then came the come down. Every day in China was filled with purpose, problem solving, heartbreak, mystery, helplessness, and joy. In America. For me, there was not much of any of the aforementioned attributes that makes life high octane interesting. Also, I couldn't find a full time job, so was just piecing together part time slots in retail, manual labor, and other tasks that friends graciously threw my way. I found bits of joy and moments to be grateful for here and there, but I also had several incidents, like when I was chased out of a corporate building for slipping lunch menu and coupons under office doors, where I grumbled to myself. I used to be a teacher at university, you know. <laughs> I sent my resume to a place called Casa Asafran in Nashville, a community center where they worked with immigrants, helping them with education, paperwork, etc., and where the government had some offices at. Eventually, they called me, and I came in all excited that they might have a job for me. The woman I met with had no employment to offer, but asked a few financial questions of me, and then stated I qualified for government assistance. Thanks, but I just want a job. I politely declined. Really, you should take the money. She encouraged. You are in exactly the situation these funds are meant for. I'm truly glad it's there, but I won't need the assistance if you have a job for me. I returned. Well, I'm sorry, we have no openings. Actually, I think you'd qualify for a home loan. But if I don't have a job, why would anyone give me money for a house? You qualify. The money's available. You should take it. I gave her a few reasons more why I morally shouldn't take the money, and asked again if she knew of any jobs anywhere I might could apply for. The woman was visibly getting irritated with me and stated again, "You really should take this money, especially, and I'm not supposed to say this before the Republicans cut the funding." I didn't want to make the woman mad at me, and so blathered on again why it wasn't right for me to get assistance, and finally got out of there. While pulling out of the parking lot, I immediately got on the phone to call my housemate. She being the friend who suggested offhandedly that I apply at the center, I told her my story, and she replied, "Oh yeah, I should have warned you. That place is bad about doing stuff like that." My friend went on to tell how she, as a Hispanic with a legal background, helped newly arrived Hispanics get out of the government entanglements the folks at Casa Asafran were pushing them into. Apparently, it goes like this: 
The immigrants, mostly females, would go to the center to get some help of legal documents or translations or whatever. And while there, government employees like the woman I had would sign them up for food stamps and some other government assistance. And in spite of their protests, the immigrant women would get home with their husbands would flip out, they having pride and not wanting handouts. So the immigrants would return to Casa Asafran to try to undo the financial aid, only to have the representatives say that they couldn't not take it now. Eventually, these women would find my housemate, who knew the ins and outs of escaping the system. The whole incident made me not only more depressed for my own personal situation, but at the determination of some in our American bureaucracy to have as many folks dependent, even if unwillingly, on its teat. This in spite of our gargantuan national debt, which was in a relative way approaching Weimar Republic debt GDP ratios. This added to the gloom that had come over me while I was absorbing how quickly my home country seemed to have descended in the three years I was gone. The American left, in particular, had either become more authoritarian since I had left, or I was just more sensitive to anything that smelled of control. For example, Thomas Friedman of the New York Times, praising the Chinese communist dictatorship, stating, quote, One party autocracy certainly has its drawbacks, but when it is led by a reasonably enlightened group of people, as China is today, it can also have great advantages. That one party can just impose the politically difficult but critical important policies needed to move a society forward in the 21st century, unquote. <laughs> Filmmaker Woody Allen musing, quote, It would be good if President Obama could be a dictator for a few years because he could do a lot of good things quickly, unquote. Actor, martial arts artist, and benefactor of the communist mainland as vice chairman of the China Film Board and whose worth is over $300 million, Jackie Chan would proclaim, quote, I'm not sure if it is good to have freedom or not. I'm really confused now. If you are too free, you are like the way Hong Kong is now, very chaotic. Taiwan is also chaotic. I'm gradually beginning to feel that we Chinese need to be controlled. If we are not being controlled, we'll just do what we want. Unquote. Wow. Yeah. It was even high ups in the Obama administration openly praising the single most murderous dictator of human history, Chairman Mao. The White House communications director, Anita Dunn, stated at a high school graduation that, quote, Mao Zedong was being challenged within his own party on his plan to basically take China over. The nationalist... Chinese helped the cities, they had the army, they had the air force, they had everything on their side, and the people said, how can you win? How can you do this? Against all odds against you. And Mao Zedong said, you fight your war and I'll fight mine. And think about that for a second. And she went on to call Mao Zedong one of her favorite philosophers. Nice. Obama manufacturing czar Ron Bloom stated, quote, we get the joke. We know that the free market is nonsense. We kind of agree with Mao that political power comes largely from the barrel of a gun. And while those were just the pampered higher-ups moaning in their silk underwear, down in the trenches, the growing mobs known as social justice warriors were out in force when I returned with their violence and vitriol. These rabid youth were busy forcing the firing of teachers whose views they couldn't tolerate, spitting and physically attacking attendees and lecturers at various school functions for the same reasons, demanding that any figure from history whom they find to be a political heretic to be erased from the bookshelves, buildings and road signs, and more than anything, destroying the private and public property in their giant temper tantrums. Describe these traits to any Chinese who was alive during the late 1960s, and they'll assume you're talking about the Red Guards, 
Chairman Mao's murderous private army of cultural genocidal maniacs. I guess in this case it's George Soros's private army. <laughs> the civil and religious liberties and property rights America had separated from Britain over in the American Revolution, I found, were being mocked as outdated or irresponsible. Houston Mayor Anise Parker self-justified her subpoenaing preachers' sermons to watch for what she deemed hate speech. The city of New London, Connecticut, taking land from one private citizen and giving it to a private developer via eminent domain powers. The Obama administration's using the Affordable Care Act to force the nuns of the Little Sisters of the Poor to pay for chemical abortions. And I could ramble on. And all of these occurrences that I found stunk of authoritarianism, I found were viewed positively by not such trolls on the internet or publicity horrors in the media, but were also held by people I knew, loved, and had experienced kindness and charity from. On so many occasions after my return, I found myself sitting with so many friends living comfortably, yet thinking they lived in a rotten country that needed a revolution. A socialist or communist revolution, mostly, depending on the level of zealotry of the friend. Other friends may have not have been that extreme in their thinking, but still echoed that desire that certain groups needed to be banned or censored, and that if, echoing Woody Allen, only if President Obama didn't have all the constitutional limits, he could really get some stuff done. In fact, Obama was cheered on by some of my friends when he and those in his administration used various government entities such as the IRS and the Department of Justice to harass, to impede, and in some cases imprison varying groups, individuals, and journalists, such as the Tea Party, Cheryl Atkinson, Gibson Guitars, Dr. Ben Carson, Bernie Carrick, Denise D'Souza, James Rosen, and others. Look all these folks up if you don't believe me. For daring to either criticize or go against the administration's messianic wisdom. I kept saying for the sake of argument that even if President Obama never abused such power, although clearly he did, the precedent he set would only empower the next guy who could be worse. I was dismissed as not seeing the permanence of the progressive democratic spirit in the hearts of the people, and well, guess what? Now all my same friends are having meltdowns from President Trump's ascension and all the presidential powers now at his fingertips that Obama had assembled for him. I don't mean to gloat, and I try to tell you, but I tried to tell you. <laughs> No doubt this phenomenon of a few people wanting to use power to force the greater good is nothing new to America or humanity. Slaveholders justify their control of African slaves with lines like Vice President John C. Calhoun, who held that, quote, never before has the black race of Central Africa, from the dawn of history to the present day, attained a condition so civilized and so improved, not only physically, but morally and intellectually. That's how he described slavery in America. Hmm. And within American politics, the authoritarian streak doesn't just plague the Democratic Party. Plenty of Republican leaders have expanded power to, quote, help or, quote, meet a crisis. Theodore Roosevelt justified the idea of government confiscating private property with, quote, the man who wrongly holds that every human right is secondary to his profit must now give way to the advocate of human welfare, who rightly maintains that every man holds his property subject to the general right of the community to regulate its use to whatever degree the public welfare may require it. And who define public welfare? The enlightened experts. Up top, of course. Certainly not the unwashed public. The broken country I'd just left behind, I'd seen with my own eyes, was the end result of such thinking. Whenever I'd hear anyone in America claim that more central power was moral, and anyone who opposed it was either ignorant, selfish, or evil, I kept seeing the suffering faces in China trying their best to hide the mental and physical pain caused by the injustice of arrogant, unchecked power. 
Of course, I don't think most of these Bernie Sanders-type folks were advocating for the death or suffering of millions. They just didn't see the connection between their good intentions and the historical time and, again, consequences of such actions, which brought me to become quite a bit more vocal, both about what I'd seen personally and what was recorded by the refugees and political prisoners in whatever country authoritarianism had wrecked, be it China, Cuba, Laos, Cambodia, or others, in that first year back in the States. But I don't think it did much good. Most of my friends got their information from NPR, MSNBC, or other left-wing news sources, all of which were, in varying degrees, voluntarily guilty of propaganda, and in my mind, not rooted in reality or gleaned from any kind of actual personal experience. To make things even more difficult was that in an attempt to break into the Chinese market, Hollywood was now censoring and even rewriting their films as to the dictates of the Chinese Communist Party. Not surprising for a generally politically leftist industry, but devastating for the potential light what brave in Tinseltown could have shown on China's human rights violations. Now there was no chance that anyone who got their worldview from Hollywood would ever know about the 70 million plus murder by the CCP. Some looked at me like I was a pitiful fool who didn't truly understand what I thought I saw in China. Some held that it was only China and maybe a few other countries that had gotten the beauty of absolute power wrong. Marxism, socialism, whatever elseism should work like a charm anywhere else. If I ever considered that as a possibility, it was dismissed by a visit to my now fiancé's neck of the woods, Zimbabwe in South Africa, both even more disastrous products of Chinese and Soviet seed planting. And I realize that some of you listening may be raising your fist in solidarity with many of the political ideologies and practices I've been rambling on about. I'll never deny your right to think for yourself, but as a human who hates to see others repeat my own mistakes, I should warn you that I think you've allied yourself with a frenzied flash mob that deems treating others as you want to be treated as that of a code of fools. And once your will is forced on others who weren't threatening you in the first place, you can never claim any association with the words freedom, democracy, tolerance, or love, at least with a straight face anyway. You will also have no right to be outraged if one day you find your own views censored, shadowed down, or punished with violence since that's what you'd wished on others with opposing views. And still for the next year, I found myself becoming a worse zealot, trying to set people straight about history and the consequences of unlimited power and all that. This, of course, only made me odious to others, and in time, some of my friends, I since grew tired of my overwhelming pontificating because they quit making time to hang out with me. It was a punch in the heart and made me feel like that much more of a failure. My sadness turned to anger, me thinking that if people wanted to devote themselves into the slavery of statism, I would just kindly get out of the way. Maybe one day when we're all locked up, they could whisper their error to me from the next cell block over, I thought. Of course, all of this was an overtly dramatic and counterproductive attitude to have, and had I paid more attention to the thinking of the Tao, I would have stopped trying to control the thoughts of others, right? And perhaps I had my own authoritarian idols I couldn't see, though would be obvious to others. In time, I just resolved to keep my experiences to myself, unless asked, and that has turned out to be a much more pleasant experience for everyone involved, I think. Well, except for maybe you listening to this recording right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I like what you said about, and I think they're seeing, and liberals are seeing it now in like Hollywood, that things that they are getting you know, upset about, things that they do, other people are criticizing, and they don't like that. Oh, yeah. So I do as I say, not as I do. Right. Was it uh, the actress, was it Rose McGowan? Mm-hmm. I guess she 
got paid off by Harvey Weinstein to to keep sh- you know her mouth shut about like what he had done to her and stuff. You know now women are coming back saying, "Why did you do that? Why did you get paid off to keep your mouth shut?" And she's like getting mad at them because you know you know don't, don't judge me. So you know by her taking that payoff and stuff, she just allowed that to happen to right. other people, to other women. I think about this a lot, that back to Democrats, this whole incident has really been bad for them because a lot of those people that went down were Democratic donors, especially Harvey Weinstein. And you got to wonder that he donated so much money to Planned Parenthood. Was that, in a way, a, a bit of hush money or thinking that it, he would become immune from criticism because he was so... All the stuff he was doing. Yeah, because I've heard it said before, that's one way to redeem yourself in Hollywood is to become an activist on the left. Hmm. Give money to the right people that... right. They'll keep their mouth shut about what they know about you. Yeah, you become rehabilitated in the narrative. Hmm. It's like Sean Penn is a prime example. Supposedly, he used to beat Madonna. You know, we're not supposed to tolerate people who hit women. But he's been rehabilitated because he's become such a... Liberal icon. Well, I mean, just like out in Hollywood, whatever radical view you have, there's someone out there with more radical views than you. Yeah, I think about that too because you think about how... Back to President Obama, he was not for gay marriage, for example, initially. He said the thing that other people pro- proposed, too. It's like a civil union. Unofficial. They wouldn't be married, but they would have this least legal right to maybe sue each other if it was some kind of problem. Mm-hmm. And then halfway through his term, he became pro-gay marriage. And then anybody who was still saying, like, well, we believe in this civil union thing, all of a sudden they were attacked as bigots and hate mongers or some, you know, maybe lost their jobs. Or that, well, that guy over it was a Firefox. He, he created Firefox, oh, yeah, yeah. Firefox, and he was forced out because he had donated to a, like a pro-heterosexual marriage thing. By that same definition, Obama would have been shut down and cut out of power. Mm-hmm. If we deviate from the path of the Tao, we will allow our egos and deviated hearts to run our lives. Our heart of Tao would diminish and the six senses will run wild out of control. Indulgence of this kind has disastrous consequences because the principle of the Tao is no longer taken as a guide. People become devious and ruthless in their undertakings. They come to act against the wisdom of their true natures and violate both the heavenly and human law. Not only will such people have to face the legal consequences of their actions, they will also incur the hatred of others. They will be reviled and excluded. The saddest consequences is that they will have to bear the grief of their own conscience when they die and will suffer from the full karmic force of their misdeeds. Kao Tiang Hui Back to Tennessee in that first sad year back in America. A surprising occurrence happened to me when I was cleaning a bed and breakfast place a friend of mine owned. My friend said that in addition to paying me to clean and do the laundry, that anything that the visitors had left behind would be mine. Mostly bottles of shampoo was the score, so for about a year and a half I didn't have to buy any hair care products. But one odd thing left behind caught my eye on one of the shelves, a book with Chinese words on it. It was an English translation of a work called Gems from the Heart, by Cao Tianhui. And guess what? It was a Taoist work. Though a simple work, that little book felt like an encouragement from God to keep on seeking. 
In the midst of that, I kept up via email and Skype with friends back in the Middle Kingdom. Megan told me that the Big Dummy Dow Club met a couple of times before giving it up. Many of the group were moving away to other cities to find work or to continue schooling. The band broke up. About a year after I had left China, my mind started to scheme on how to get back at least for a visit. I missed my friends terribly and I still wanted to track that old Taoist man down. I had drained a good part of the money I had saved to go to Africa when visiting my girlfriend's parents, so I didn't have enough money just to pop over. I racked my brain but couldn't think of any good plan until I got hit up by someone crowdfunding a film he was trying to make. I couldn't very well get people to contribute to a fund just so I could go to China and have a reunion with people I missed. Besides, what would they get for their donations? A sense of satisfaction at seeing my beaming face? (laughs) Not really worth it, I can tell you. Then it dawned on me, if I could pin Master Lu Zhixing down and get those stories, I could get a book out of it, and that would be the payoff for anyone trying to help me out. So I asked Taylor to really try to locate the old man and maybe get him to commit to a date that we could meet. She kept calling the number he'd given us, but it always said that it was off or out of range. So Taylor called the fat master at the Langma Futusu, whom was polite at first, and said he'd talked to the teacher once he got back from some obscure Taoist mountain. Some months went by, and the fat master never called back, so Taylor called again, and the teacher blew up, saying that he had given us ample chances to give him gift money for his help. When Taylor asked how much was adequate, he said 100,000 RMB, which is a ton of money. What's that in American dollars? Uh, almost 20 grand. Really? Yeah, somewhere around there. Just to talk to him? Yeah. Okay. My student was shocked and just ended up hanging up the phone. But when Taylor was relating this incident to me over Skype, her face told that something else had happened. I pulled the Big Brother card in the Chinese adopted sense, not in the Orwellian sense, and insisted on her showing me what she was obscuring with her mouth. Finally, with a few tears, my little sister confessed that the other option the fat master gave her was that she could sleep with him. Really? Yeah. This made me ill in my belly, not only at the fat master's shameful actions, but the fact that from on the other side of the globe, I had nearly got my student into some life-ruining situation because of my obsession with some stories the world was turning well enough without. It seems neither the fat master or myself had read the Tao Te Ching very closely. This near catastrophe in a young girl's innocent life reminded me again of this tendency of me to often love the looking more than the finding, not content with the wealth of material that I had already acquired and yet hadn't ruminated on properly. Truth be told, some of the Taoist writings I had worked so hard to get, I hadn't even finished reading it. But back to the traumatic Skype call with Taylor. My former student apologized and said she was afraid I would look down on China and Taoism if I knew how corrupt both had become. I reminded her that this problem in varying degrees was everywhere, so it didn't matter. And Taylor also pointed out that we weren't sure if the old master was aware of what the fat one was up to. So we would hold out that maybe he was still pure and tried other channels to try to locate him. But at that point, my zeal had been curtailed considerably. A little later, I thought of one other possible avenue to get at the old master, Annie. For starters, I thought that since she was hooked in the Taoist temple system, maybe she could pull some strings to locate Lu Zhixing. Also, I knew that Annie hated the corruption in her country and had a personality which was spitfire-ish, to put it mildly, to the point that she probably would know a secret Tai Chi move that could rip out and stir-fry the testicles of any man that might try to pull something over on her. So I sent her an email, and her response was something like, You met Master Lu Zhixing? He's a big deal. She promised to try to track the guy down, but in the end was unsuccessful. Huh. That's craziness.
cut doors and windows to make a room. It is because of its emptiness that the room is useful. Therefore, what is present is used for profit, but it is in absence that there is usefulness. Lao Tzu. Although the money I was paid in China didn't carry over very well, when I would go back home to the USA, the exchange rate was 6 RMB to $1. When I found what everyone else was being paid in China, especially other far smarter and harder working folks than myself, I felt like a total fraud. All I was doing was teaching the Chinese how to talk my language, which a good portion of the globe knows how to do already. And yet I was being paid more than the average Chinese doctor. Of course, the Tao had a story for that. Zhuangzi tells about a poor family of silk dyers, the trade of which really took a toll on their hands until someone in the clan developed a salve that aided the chap's skin. A stranger heard about the family's salve and offered a small fortune for the recipe. Tired of just getting by in life, the dyers took the offer and gave away the secret formula. The stranger then headed to the state of Wu, which was in the middle of a war with the state of Yu, and the former not faring well because of the soldier's hands getting chapped from both the freezing weather and sword use. The stranger offered the salve recipe to the king of Wu, who in turn offered the stranger a position of leadership, and eventually the war was won by the Wu. The salve in one place was used for menial, unprofitable uses, and in another situation won a war and saved the kingdom. Success sometimes depends where you happen to be standing and when. And boy, ain't I living proof of this truth. In fact, as I write this, I live in a small town in Kentucky and teach Chinese. I speak the language about as well as a child and read it even less, but there's no one else around for miles that can speak it as well as I do, so here I am making money from having a skill that over a billion and a half people have, though lucky for me, none of them live nearby. So if you're looking for a trick to make you some money, get up, start walking until you get to a town where one of your mediocre abilities becomes an in-demand oddity. <laughs> do you have a uh, skill that hardly anybody else has? I mean, I know you're a fantastic dancer. Yeah. Well, computers. Do you think if you went to Silicon Valley... Oh, no, I'd, I'd be laughed out of town. So you're best to stay put. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you do it better than most at the place you work at, you would say? Uh, I don't know about that. I just show probably more initiative than most of them. I think that's part of it, you know, willing to figure out a problem. Some aren't willing. Just a lot of laziness. That's something I noticed that almost every job I've had, I've never been great at most of it, but I show up on time, and that goes a long way. Mm-hmm. So, here I am. Stupid's here, on time, again. <laughs> if people do not see desirables, they will not be agitated. Lao Tzu. I eventually got married, and at some point, my wife asked me if I wanted to go have a look at houses for sale. I said I didn't since we were so far a few years at least, from being able to afford one. Why frustrate ourselves at looking at something we couldn't have? We can just dream, was her reply. So it seems my wife thinks Lao Tzu is wrong on this matter. The two of us talk some more about this concept of window shopping down dreamland, and I mentioned Lao Tzu's quote, to which my wife said that seeing things she couldn't have motivated her to work hard and save. Although, as I write this, she doesn't have a lot of things she always dreamed of having, like a German car, a better wedding ring, a new home for her parents, etc. She did finally get her master's degree and has a fairly prestigious position in the medical world, so I think she had a point. Of course, we have to keep in mind that Lao Tzu lived in times 
where by and large the powerful were born rich and eventually died rich, and likewise the poor lived and died poor. Though not entirely unheard of, it was rare for a ditch digger in those times to be able to look at a nice house inhabited by a hot chick and think that if he worked hard enough and played his cards right, he might possibly could score a similar crib where a trophy wife would be there waiting when he got home to tear his muddy clothes off and lick his body clean. (laughs) Maybe I thought too much about this. Uh There wasn't near the same widespread fluid social mobility that free market democracies enjoy these days. In less egalitarian cultures, the lower classes seeing things they could never aspire to have has sometimes led to uprisings, looting, and pitchfork-impaled rich guys. So Lao Tzu's observation certainly has value for the ruling class. But even in our modern systems of cheap commodities and pleasures, there's still plenty of things out of our grasp that can cause frustration. Optimum career situations, physical abilities, insights, physical beauty, happiness, peace, romance with supermodels, These are all things that no amount of money or scheming can absolutely guarantee. For myself, that thing I can see and yet can't have is children. I see parents with children all the time and it pains me. There's really nothing, no matter what I do, save some destructive measures that will get me any. I cheat on my wife. The pain is worse when I'm around them even. For example, I have some grandchildren via my wife's kids and it's a pure joy when they come to visit. But when they leave, the come down in my heart sometimes makes me wonder If it were better, they had never come at all. I teach a few classes to immigrants and their children, and I get so high from all the breakthroughs and laughter that occur in each session that it makes my drive home a seemingly cold, quiet solitude. In addition, I drive a school bus part-time, and when all the children are dropped off, I later look at all the pictures they've drawn for me or still feel the dampness of their tears on my shirt when they've looked to me to alleviate their grade school crises. I get down in the dumps especially after seeing many of them go home to parents that only use their kids for the government assistant checks. Besides, it's not likely anybody could have hidden children from me all my life just so I could avoid wondering what fatherhood looked like. Maybe you're screaming the obvious at my blind self right now, which reminds me of a story we tell in the American South where there's a guy in a leaky boat out in the ocean and he prays for God to save him. After he's been treading water a while, somebody in a speedboat pulls up and says, Hey, get on in and I'll take you to the shore. The guy refuses, saying, Thanks, but God's going to save me. A little later, a helicopter hovers over and offers its rope ladder to the guy in the water. The guy politely waves the copter pilot away, hollering, God's going to save me. Well, finally, the guy succumbs to exhaustion and drowns. Arriving in heaven, he makes a beeline to God and with some indignation asks, Hey man, why did you let me drown in the ocean? God shakes his head and explains, I sent you a speedboat and a helicopter. (laughs) So yeah... I don't have children, but I've been given grandchildren, children to teach, and children to transport. I may in fact be around more children in a single day than most people are in a year. I should just be grateful for what I have, and as Buddha implored, extinguish my desire for more. In the end, though, I think Lao Tzu is correct. There's still nowhere one can completely hide our eyes from stuff we can't have. Just got to get over it and cherish what we do have. Are you motivated by things that you don't have? I don't think so. Have you ever been? All I'm motivated is and I'm just going to have to keep working. It's just not to work. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So That's you work. the one thing I hate doing. I absolutely hate it. But you kind of enjoy your job, don't you? To an extent. But if I didn't have to get up and go to it... So you're working and saving so you eventually won't have to work. Right. Okay. But I'd just like to quit now. Do you see other people not working and like, man, that's it. 
Yeah, I see a lot of people not working when I'm at work. And <laughs> <laughs> making a heck of a lot more money than I do. Uh. Sleeping on a belt generates dreams of snakes. Seeing a bird holding hair in its beak creates dreams of flight. Dreams are made when the mind encounters the external world. When the body meets the outside world, it becomes reality. Thus you dream at night what you think during the day, and this is the result of contacts between mind and body. Therefore, when you are spiritually concentrated and pure, feelings during the daytime and dreams at night will both vanish. True awakening is beyond description in language, and true dreams are beyond our complete understanding, because they result from the changes in our feelings and thoughts. It isn't groundless to say that the ancient immortals forgot themselves when awake and never made dreams when they slept, is it? Lietza, 3-3. My desire to get back to China waned sometimes, I think because it was painful to think about, but would always seem to come back with a heart-stabbing vengeance. The money I made at my jobs at that time more or less kept me at the break-even point still. But then a gift fell into my lap, or my lap fell into it, to be more accurate. An old friend who went by the handle left-handed Foster, in reference to both her politics and actual writing hand, sent me an email one day saying that she had an old car that she wanted to give me because she'd recently upgraded to a vehicle more suited for her new digs out on some Tennessee ridge. Wowee. I went and got the cute little Honda and turned around to sell my older Toyota, and in the end got exactly enough money to cover the plane tickets and other traveling expenses to go back to China. So two and a half years after I had left the middle country, I was able to return. In addition to the multiple reunions with friends and former students, my only other one goal was to try to get to Zhuangzi's hometown, with Peter if I could. The young man traveled all the way from Shanghai to see me, which is something like a 14-hour train ride. One couldn't help thinking that our finding something significant was destined, considering all the effort we were putting into the visit. The village where the master was supposedly born was outside a small town around three hours from Luoyang, Hunan, though there wasn't any consensus among folks we talked to as whether the village was worth going to since there was almost certainly nothing a man who lived 2,000 years ago would have physically left behind for us to find. The promise of more exposed old lady genitals wasn't enough to draw us to surely hard-to-find Qinglian, and so we opted to just visit a museum dedicated to Zhuangzi in the nearby city of Mingkwang. We checked the hours of the place before we took the few-hour bus trek, and all seemed set for at least a nice journey of friends catching up while strolling through a building full of photocopied illustrations, counterfeit relics, and butchered English plaques. Well, the union between Peter and myself was great, full of stories of the young man's adventures in Shanghai over the past couple years, in addition to theological discussions. We got to the city's bus station, which was desolate. Tore up parking lot, no taxis, and just a few food shops scattered in an ailing building. At least one of the shops sold a local delicacy, goat brains, which we actually devoured hungrily. When we came out of the shop, a taxi driver had showed up, I suspect having been called by a cousin or a friend at the bus stop saying, Get down here quick! There's a rich foreigner eating our town's goat brains. <laughs> the driver was actually really nice and took us to the Zhuangzi Museum, which, of course, was locked shut with no explanation. Other than the handful of butterflies etched into the building, there was really nothing to distinguish it architecturally, 
speaking, from any other building in China. Maybe there was an electric butterfly inside that Peter and I could pay one RMB to ride while a recording of a Tejano band jammed out a umpapa version of Butterfly Kisses. Sadly, we would never know. The taxi driver did bring up that he knew where Zhuang's birth village was and could take us there. We had to at this point, I felt. The village was 45 minutes away, and other than the tiny, quote, official Zhuangzi grocery market, nothing Zhuangzi about it, not even the ice cream was made out of monkey nuts or anything, there wasn't much to see. There was a well that supposedly dated back to the sage's time, and there was a small shrine on the edge of a cornfield that we were sure was erected within the decade in hopes of luring other suckers to the spot so villagers could try to sell them their Louis handbags and other such trinkets. Peter and I just laughed at ourselves, took some obligatory photos, and immediately began looking forward to returning to Loyang to be with our other friends. Later during our trip, I again was blessed to get hooked up with some more experts on the Tao, as experts as one can be on such a mind-slippery subject. A few having written books, and I recorded them all for future podcasts. But try as I might with all these great minds, none of them knew how to help me find the old master. Maybe he had met the same fate as Lao Tzu and was then being peeled off the front of some bread van. As my plane lifted up into the Guangzhou sky and headed back to America, one question I realized I would probably never ask again was if there was any modern-day Lao Tzu, Lietze, or Zhuangzas, someone who was adding to the Dao Jia canon. The possibility didn't seem to occur to any of the many scholars I had talked with, probably in the same way most Christians aren't looking for more chapters to be added to the Bible. But see, any theologian or historian will tell you that God didn't stop breaking through space and time after the final book of Revelation. In other words, if the Bible is a witness to the acts of God and his people, the Bible hasn't stopped being written. I believe you could easily add the stories and lives of the martyrs, saints, and thinkers such as Francis of Assisi, Thomas Aquinas, Mother Teresa, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Richard Wurmbrand, C.S. Lewis, and many others. But as it is, many modern churches seem to be locked into focusing just on the biblical writings and somewhat less enthused by the miracles, compassion, and suffering happening all around us. All to say, maybe it's the same with most Taoists. The Tao didn't stop being the Tao with Zhuang's last word being written down, but in the spirit of orthodoxy, maybe we look at it as the final say. The other conclusion I came to on that trip was that maybe I don't have any more questions, really. I don't think it means I've got it all figured out, and I hope it doesn't mean I'm more stupider than when I started this quest. I'm hoping it means that when I was eyeing the door to go, it just meant I could hear the happy humming of the Tao going on outside, alongside the groaning of so many trying to live in a manner contrary to the way. Well, though this essay is now at an end for now... I'm sure that the story is not. As I write this, China is descending into darker times with the ascension of Xi Jinping. He's eliminated in various ways the thousands of both fellow Communist Party members and private citizens that either have opposed, countered, or criticized him. One can only pray that this is the final storm before the long-awaited collapse of Communist Party rule. One of my former students, who had to leave China for political reasons, asked me in a message of despair, what can we do? The only answer I could come up with was to prepare the Chinese people for the vacuum that would certainly follow the potentially glad day when Chairman Mao's portrait in Beijing was pulled down. Look at why revolutions like the one in America left an imperfect but relative calm in its wake, while most other revolutions, such as in France, filled so many baskets with severed heads and rivers full of corpses. What did the American Revolution leave so unresolved that it led the country to a civil war less than a hundred years later. 
how did the democratic process eventually lead America to the declining state that it's in now? What shortcomings in the human condition will always persist, no matter the country, culture, or time period, no matter the amount of education or money, and what can a people do in anticipation of this defect? Why is this truth so obvious in any reading of history, and why would totalitarian regimes work so hard to keep the people in the dark about it? Or in short, what is the Tao of everything? Shall we now sow seeds and bury bulbs beneath that patch of cement round where the portrait will fall, so that the blood swamp mouth leader will be met by flowers and food when he plummets, leaving little room for the dormant barbed wire, briar, thicket to find purchase in the rebroken ground? We have help in planning the new garden. There are some from outside our walls who have heard our cries and choose not to reimagine that they were cheers of adulation. And these listeners have sent us seeds for trees that hold histories in the memory leaves, held up by trunks of wisdom which may sway only slightly as if to sidestep iron-fisted dogmas. And there are pressed, unopened flowers buried in this land as well, under sidewalk tiles, within walls, and inside hearts, all resilient scrolls themselves and all protected by silence and suspicion of invitations to talk. Memories of blossoms bring in the swing of the sickle from the genocidal megalomaniac in the portrait up on the wall. And we must be quietly clever, joyous yet watching, while in among the celebrants, when the portrait finally lays crumpled on the ground, for we know that there's plenty more villains laying in wait, shuffling among us, pockets full of blueprints, spelling out new horrors, and their ambition to fill the boots and graves of that monster with the unconcerned gaze. To be clear, we're not wanting to replace the portrait with another. There must be anything framed up there on that wall. It should remain an empty frame, representing God or his refusal to be boxed in and weaponized by his children. Thanks for coming along. I'll swing by your ears sometime soon in the future. End. <laughs> Any plans of going back? Uh, I would love to, but I, I don't have the, the financial means at the, at the moment. I had thought about, because I've been offered a couple jobs since, maybe going for like a summer, but I don't think my wife would uh, go for that. All right. When you're married, you got to have responsibilities, and you can't be traipsing off. I think leaving her for a month to go back to China was probably bad enough. Yeah. Unless I can convince her to come with me. And she needs to save most of her money to go back to Zimbabwe every year or a year and a half. So. Yeah. The Tao that can be spoken is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. The nameless is the origin of heaven and earth. The name is the mother of myriad things. Thus, constantly without desire, one observes its essence. Constantly with desire, one observes its manifestations. These two emerge together, but differ in name. The unity is said to be the mystery. Mystery of mysteries, the door to all wonders. Tao Te Ching 1. In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram by searching for Spun Counter Guy. You can send us an email via SpunCounterGuy at Hotmail.com. The podcast is also hosted on iTunes and Podbean.com. Peace and chicken grease! Cow Tian Hui.
Carlton. Wait, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 